My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading this morning comes from Acts, the second chapter. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at the sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here ends the reading. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Last week, we finished up the Easter season, acknowledged the ascension, and we looked at how Revelation used artistic imagery, cyclical repetitions and more, to show us a few things at the same time that aren't so easy to understand or explain. Like, for example, that the same sort of things that have happened in history happen again and again, and that even though each cycle does not spell the end of time, it can be for us like the end of the world, because for us, our own deaths can be like the end of the world. Second, God sees time all at once. 
Rather than the straight line that we see, God sees something of an open plane upon which all that ever has is or will be is made plain. God can see those individual cycles and their culmination at the same time. It's a mind-bending sort of thing that for most of us can only be grasped at through that kind of poetic, artistic imagery, the storytelling, the repetition. God, who is eternal, is outside of time and does not witness or experience time as we do. So the fullness of time, as it were, can be affected by God, everything, even as it appears as a single event in history to us. So for today, while this idea of God's time versus our time is fresh on our minds, it's not something we often think about, let's take a look at Pentecost with that concept in mind. All right, you know the story here. All these people, Jewish folks who hail from all over the known world, are gathered together living in Jerusalem. They share a faith, a culture, a lot of common values, but there's this language barrier between many of them. And then the Holy Spirit descends in the form of wind. These tongues of fire spring up, and the apostles begin to speak in a way that is discernible to all the crowds. That language barrier instantly disappears. As the apostles speak, everyone understands. People try to make sense of that. Maybe everyone's drunk, right? Seems like a strange explanation, but maybe if they were drunk, they could speak and hear gibberish and convince themselves that it makes perfect sense. But no, Peter assures us it's too early for that. At least it's too early for all of them to be drunk. Instead, Peter tells them that it's the prophecy from Joel being fulfilled. And it's here that we get into this way in which God's time and therefore the way time is presented by the prophets doesn't quite fit our linear concept of time. Joel says, and then God does, empower the people like the priests and prophets had been empowered so that anyone you can think of, you name it, even the slaves, will experience this ecstatic mystical encounter with divine. Each of them afforded that opportunity, if only once, to do the kind of things that prophets do. But Joel also says this is right before the end of days. And notice that not everything Joel describes, even as Peter relays it, is happening there on Pentecost. And yet, Peter is inspired to recognize that that prophecy and this day are connected. Now, like last week, we're seeing a bit of a, a confluence, a connection of multiple things, like... A major event in history, it could have been an event in our lives, it's an event in Peter's life, and a prophetic day of the Lord with the strong impl implication that everything will soon come to an end. And in fact, these layers are so often stacked on top of one another throughout the Old and New Testament that we would be remiss not to notice, to not think of the other possible layers whenever we encounter one of them. One of them from, well, we could make a quick list, the, the day of the Lord, like when God will act in a big way as to deliver and save God's people. That's one layer. The, uh, another layer might be something in our own lives. Again, maybe the first big encounter we have with God or maybe our death. Then a, another layer might be when the world ends. Now, as to how those three layers might relate, they might share some similarities. It's not so obvious to us. Because, again, we see history, uh, we see time in a line with history behind us, our days right now, and the end still in the future. 
But God can see threads that connect them and maybe don't go in this direction. The prophets try to make us see those threads too. So whether it's this sense that history is repeating itself, so what we're experiencing now is like this before, or that God is responding in some way to events that seem unrelated to us, maybe even events in the future, or that God is preparing us for an encounter in this life or at our death or in the next life, well, that's the question then. That's why we have to consider these other layers. What thread might be God responding to? What thread that connects these layers might the prophets be pointing us to? Well, again, let's stick with Pentecost. What other events could be layered on top of Pentecost as to explain what God sees and how we might interpret it? Well, to figure that out, one way to do this, one layer we might find, let's go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis, that primordial history, that series of fantastic events that gets us from day one of creation to Abraham. In the middle there, we find a rather quick story. If you were glossing over, <laughs> you could pass it by and maybe, you know, blink if you might miss it sort of thing. The Tower of Babel. Now, to recap it, Nimrod, this king, recognizes God's majesty and glory and wants to rival it. So he commissions a tower be built so that he would make a name for himself. God sees this tower being built, sees it as an idol of a king who is himself, in a sense, an idol to his people. And God's not impressed, but God doesn't knock it down. Instead, God confuses and divides the people by changing their languages on an individual or uh, you know, small community basis so that the whole can no longer cooperate and communicate as a country. Though they still share their cultural values, maybe, maybe more than that, right? Maybe they have a lot in common. And despite all that commonality, they can no longer get along. The lesson there is that when we seek ourselves, or seek our worldly powers, or our idols, and think that's where we'll find our way to safety, to eternity, to grandeur, to legacy. God will thwart that. God will disrupt those efforts. Therefore, we're called to do something else. Go it alone? Well, that doesn't make sense. Nimrod couldn't build such a tower on his own and wouldn't be, you know, God wouldn't be any more pleased with that. So instead, it seems the only viable alternative in light of the Tower of Babel is that we cooperate towards something that is bigger, better than all the counterexamples we find in that story. Bigger than those literal towers. Bigger than monuments to legacies. Bigger than kings. Bigger than kingdoms. To grasp God-like levels of glory, majesty, and honor, to get even just a taste we have to grasp towards God. So is the Tower of Babel the sort of thing that happens again and again in cycles throughout history? The sort of event God might see threaded through or layered upon other events, some of which we will experience? <laughs> of course it is. That kind of arrogance, disruption, and destruction, well, we see them in every generation. That's part of why these stories live on, because they are so utterly relatable. And this one in particular has been fairly fresh on my mind, uh, because about six months ago, Jonathan Haidt put an opinion piece in The Atlantic suggesting that we're in one of those moments. Now, that 
article was far too long to do justice here, but here's a, uh, an attempt to do it justice. Social media and corporate media have driven sizable segments of the population into what you might call echo chambers, like you can only hear the things that you say, the kind of things you would say, or a bubble, a construct that feels safe and pretty, but it will pop if anything disrupts it from the outside, so better keep that away. And he compares this to the confusion that followed the Tower of Babel. The people in these various echo chambers subscribe to only feeds and news sources and commentators that support and reinforce the, the narratives, the sort of things they already believe and agree with. They cannot truly understand anyone outside that bubble, especially someone in a different bubble over here. Therefore, for both of them, rock-solid evidence objective data, well-reasoned, rational arguments, the kind of things we normally should be able to communicate and cooperate around, get ignored. They think anything that doesn't agree with their narrative is propaganda. Any public figure who would burst their bubble must be on the take. You know, so they'll say things like, how much did so-and-so pay you to say that? There's a glimmer of hope, however, in that when we consider the polls or surveys, which are done anonymously or privately, the fact is most of us don't believe the kind of utter nonsense that gets perpetuated in those echo chambers. You have to already be trapped in one of them to believe the most absurd lies. But there's still a problem here, and this is, uh, this is at the core of Haidt's point. The problem, well, it's manifest right here and now, because if I say something which, in private conversation, virtually all of us agree with the common sense, objectively evident, plain as day reality, if I say it from up here as a public figure, doubtless at least one person, someone will be upset. And I can rag on the politicians all day long for how they pander nonsense to maintain votes in this way, but preachers do it too. So we might say, well, those politicians, once they get the votes, their position is secure, then they'll get back to the truth, to what makes sense, though many wait until they're about to retire before they actually get there. Well, we preachers say, once we've gained your trust, then we'll get to the difficult stuff. But many of us wait until we're ready to move on to another call or ready to retire. I'm sensing a theme. Now, that wasn't exactly where Height took it, but that is, again, the kind of underlying point that moderates who are not bought into a bubble are the majority of us. And yet most of us do not speak up for fear of alienating or aggravating those who are in the bubbles. The Tower of Babel didn't fall. And our country is still here. And yet our devotion to idols, be they politicians or preachers, or corporate figures, and the love of money, the root of all evil, has made us unable to speak plainly with one another as to cooperate. So what does that have to do with Pentecost? Well, the connection from Babel to Pentecost is, well, that thread is a little easier to see than most. God divided their tongues, made them unable to communicate while building this tower. And then a few thousand years later, God did the reverse by empowering disparate people to communicate despite language barriers. So the lesson at Babel is the same as the lesson at Pentecost. And what do you know? It's the lesson now. 
when we set ourselves aside, and that includes our tribal preferences, so that we can work together for something greater than ourselves as to honor God, which we Christians do in our worship and by loving our neighbors and proclaiming the gospel, then we can be effective. We can get a glimpse, a taste of that majesty, honor, and glory that God affords this world. If we continue, on the other hand, to pin our hopes on those towers, those false gods, which means we as an individual will take the word of a source, a commentator, a politician, no matter how absurd it is, no matter how much it contradicts plain evidence as to obey Nimrod without thinking, or it means that we as individuals who are more moderate and common sense oriented grow timid and bury our opinions for the sake of not offending anyone, well, we're headed in a very bad way. I mean, if you know how that word Nimrod gets used today, then you know the legacy of the tribes who behave as Nimrods did. But we as a church have and are a hope for the country and for the world. Our pews are filled with people who politely disagree about hot-button issues. Our pews are filled with people who dream dreams and prophesy despite their generational differences, despite their cultural backgrounds. Their, I mean, in our congregations, Bible studies evoke meaningful conversations about important matters, some of which are politicized. Our small groups build trust such that each member knows they can trust others to love and trust them still, even if they say something which they disagree with. People know how to communicate and cooperate when there's something bigger than ourselves to unite us. Churches that do it well, we do it because it's God. It's the gospel. It's the church. There's something bigger than us, several things, that compel us to work together for their sake. For the God's sake, we will work together despite our differences. Now, our country can still be united if we put those sorts of values up top. If we consider compassion and communication and cooperation and more to the point, if we as individuals recognize our need to be one as more important than our individual desires and we learn to talk to one another as we used to, as we should, as congregations do. Well, as Lincoln said it at his first inaugural address, with ultimate divisions looming, civil war on the horizon, he said, we must not be enemies, but friends. God has empowered us to communicate and cooperate and set our sights on the gospel, on faith, hope, and love. God has called us to be friends. It's time we burst out of our bubbles and start talking plainly so that we can speak and be understood in a respectful, safe way. We need to speak as friends do. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular 
text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.